Good morning. My name is Heather Nevitt. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Texas Lawyer. Um, on behalf of the Texas Tribune, I'm happy to welcome you to the fourth annual Texas Tribune Festival and to our panel discussion inside the Texas Supreme Court. This event will last 60 minutes and will include a 15 to 20 minute period of Q&A for anyone in the audience that would like to ask the panel any questions. Um, before we get started, please silence your phones. And for those who want to tweet, the hashtag is TribuneFest. And there is also a track-specific hashtag for this event, hashtag TTFJustice. <coughs> so Texas Lawyer has been diligently covering the Texas Supreme Court since 1985. And I'm pleased to host this panel of seven of its members. Good morning, Justices. Good morning. I would like to take a moment and introduce each one of them to you. We have Chief Justice Nathan Hecht, was first elected to the Texas Supreme Court in 1988. He was appointed, by Chief Justice Gov appointed Chief Justice by Governor Rick Perry in 2013. He is the senior Texas appellate judge in active service. Justice Paul Green was elected to the Texas Supreme Court in 2004. He has served as president of the San Antonio Bar Association and director of the State Bar of Texas. Before joining the court, Green also served for 10 years as a justice on the Fourth Court of Appeals in San Antonio. Justice Don Willett was appointed to the Texas Supreme Court by Governor Rick Perry in 2005. Prior to joining the court, Willett served as a Deputy Texas Attorney General and counsel to the Texas Governor. He has also worked as a Deputy Assistant U.S. Attorney General and as a Special Assistant to President George W. Bush. Justice Eva Guzman was appointed to the Texas Supreme Court by Governor Rick Perry in 2009. Previously, she served as an Associate Justice on the Houston-based 14th Court of Appeals as a trial court judge on the 309th Family District Court. She also serves as co-chairwoman of the Houston Bar Association CLE Committee. Justice Deborah Lerman was appointed to the Texas Supreme Court by Governor Rick Perry in 2010. Previously, she served as the judge for the 360th District Court in Fort Worth and as a family law judge in Tarrant County for 22 years. In 2005, Perry appointed Lerman to serve on the National Conference of Commissioners on Uniform State Laws. Justice Jeff Boyd was appointed to the Texas Supreme Court by Governor Rick Perry in 2012. Previously, he served as the governor's chief of staff and as his general counsel and as a senior partner at Thompson & Knight. Boyd also served as Deputy Attorney General for General Litigation and then Texas Attorney General John Cornyn, and again with Attorney General Greg Abbott. Justice Jeff Brown was appointed to the Texas Supreme Court by Governor Rick Perry in 2013. Previously, he served on the 14th Court of Appeals and as a judge of the 55th District Court in Harris County. Brown has also served on several nonprofit boards, including the Board for the Christian Community Service Center. It has certainly been a different court than it was 29 years ago, with the exception of maybe its chief, who's been on the court almost as long as my publication's been in operation. <laughs> but these justices have always had our attention, especially when they don't agree, which is what Texas Lawyer's High Court Term and Review, that's coming out next issue, um, will be about. Um, so let's have some fun asking the justices some questions. Um, because this court has so many new faces, the additions to the court may change the type of cases the court accepts for review. What is this court looking um, for when a case arrives at your doorstep? And what topics interest you personally as justices? 
Green, you want to tackle that? Sure. I, you know, I don't perceive in my 10 years on the court that we've ever actually focused on a particular area. I mean, issues certainly percolate up. Um, but it seems to me that we take the issues as they come to us. Uh, we look for the same criteria for each as each case comes through that we always look at. Is it important to the jurisprudence of the state? And uh, so we're in the course of what our review of these cases. And I'm, I'm guessing. I just haven't looking. Maybe half our time is spent filtering through cases to see which ones we do think are grant worthy. Um, and so uh, we look at issues, not so much the cases, but the issues that are raised by the cases and decide those. But I, I, you know, in terms of a, uh, the kinds of cases, no, that just sort of comes along. I mean, I guess you could say that you know, after a legislative session, there's like tort reform issues that are passed by the legislature. Those start coming through pretty much at the same time. Uh, and so some of those questions that arise out of that legislation we'll be looking at, but that, that would be some of those things. 25 years ago, um, we had more common law cases. This is a common law court, so uh, that means that we decide cases on the basis of precedent, uh, historical principles, um, but they're not uh, legislated anywhere. They're not the product of the legislation or statutes. Um, but in 25 years, now we have a lot of statutory construction cases. And that's not because we chose that. That's just because the legislature has been more active in passing statutes that um, affect the, the state. And when we're called upon to interpret them, uh, there are just more cases than uh, there used to be. About 10 years ago, or 12, um, we didn't get very many parental rights termination cases. I don't know why. Uh, I still don't know what changed. Uh, but now we get a couple of weeks. And uh, they're very difficult cases. Uh, and, uh, but that wasn't because we, the court itself was interested in those cases. I mean, we are when we get them, uh, but it's just what comes along. And just to piggyback on the chief's response, you know, a quarter century ago, half century ago, longer ago, uh, our court was a more common law court, meaning judges had a lot of latitude and personal sort of freewheeling autonomy to reach out and impose a result that we found personally, subjectively, was fair or equitable or just, that satisfied our personal notion of justice. But here's a shocking revelation. Lawmakers are fond of lawmaking. And every two years, they come and gather at the Capitol, and they pass a raft of new laws. And with every new law they pass, they shrink inexorably that universe of common law judging. And the bulk of modern-day Supreme Court judging, the overwhelming lion's share of how we spend our day, is interpreting now text passed by lawmakers and signed by the governor, determining what the statutory language means. And when it comes to deciding what cases we want to grant or should grant, a lot of our attention is focused on where lower courts are divided. If the El Paso Court of Appeals says the law should be X, or we interpret the statute to mean X, and the Tyler Court of Appeals says, well, we interpret it to mean why. It really falls to us to try to, try to iron out those, um, those differences and try to establish uh, some border-to-border -border, you know, uniformity and consistency so citizens, so folks who are just in everyday life can order their affairs and act with confidence knowing kind of what the legal rules of the road are. I think it's important also that, that there's been some 
mention that perhaps would become more of an error correction court. And <clears throat> I don't think that's correct. We're certainly not going to grant a review of a case um, if it does not significantly affect the jurisprudence of the state. Having said that, uh, if we believe that the lower court got it right, even if we believe that it is an issue that significantly affects the jurisprudence of the state, chances are we're not going to grant. Because once we grant, if you look at our statistics, chances are we're going to reverse. Now, we don't ever intentionally uh, think about that in terms of, oh, we're going to absolutely reverse because we granted. But the truth of the matter, of course, that's something that we bear in mind when we're deciding what we're going to grant on. So it may be that it is a serious issue, but we're not going to grant simply because we believe the lower court got it right. But that doesn't mean we're error correction. Mm -hmm. And that is a question I, I, I think people have. They're still interested in the big issues of the day or just getting into the nitty-gritty of correct, you know, error correction for the lower courts. But, but we are definitely focused on the big issues. We're not going to grant uh, simply because we believe the lower court got it wrong. Although some of us might argue to from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you know, those are, the two, those are the two factors that we balance when we try to decide whether to hear a case. Is, is there error? Does it look like there was error? And does it look like it's an issue important to the state? And the question is, is, how much do you weigh both of those issues? And, and I'm a, a bit infamous for leaning more to error correction because we have this practice of issuing per curiam opinions where it's, it's quicker, they don't have to do oral argument. If we all agree that there was error, it's an easier process to fix it for the parties of that case. <clears throat> However, it takes five of us to grant and nine of us to do a per curiam, so we still won't often do it even if some of us from time to time argue that we should. And uh, the public may not um, have a sense of the discussion around the conference table and the process, so it isn't simply a justice votes one way or, or another. There really is a process. If any one justice votes to discuss an issue raised in a petition for review or, or the petition for review, we bring it to conference and we flesh it out in the conference room. And that's something that the public never really gets a sense of. So the, the petition may be denied, but the truth is there was a lot of discussion and research and deliberation that, that may have gone into that decision to deny. And that's an important aspect of how high courts and intermediate appellate courts may do their work, although our review is discretionary. Even at the intermediate level, there's a decision about whether it's going to be a memorandum opinion or a full opinion, whether there's going to be argument or not. So there's so much that goes into that decision-making process that the public doesn't really have a sense of, about. And I think it's also important to bear in mind how many petitions come before us that the public never sees. Uh, we put a lot of time in deciding which cases we're going to grant review over. And uh, the numbers, I don't know exactly what the numbers are as far as how many actually go back to conference because, as Justice Guzman said, if only one person wants to discuss, it's going to go back to conference. Uh, but a whole lot of time is put into uh, making that decision about which cases we're going to grant and which cases we're going to deny. And that's kind of a part of the process that nobody really knows about 
and it's very, very important and very time consuming for the nine of us. I want to piggyback on something Justice Boyd said. Um, you all agree that the court is not monolithic. Um, all of you have different areas of law that you practice. Um, but let's talk of some areas that you don't agree. Um, the court has had some pretty deep splits on big business cases of late. Um, we saw some, some sharp dissents at the end. Um, can you talk about what's going on there? Um, you know, there's sort of this... <laughs> Uh, there's sort of this notion that you know, because we're all, you know, Republican, you know, we have to run on a partisan ballot in our state. A lot of states elect their judges, but we're one of the few who attach a party label. Um, every statewide elected official, including all nine of us, are Republican. And there's, a, I guess, an assumption that because we are Republican, we all agree. We all kind of march along in ideological lockstep. Uh, we're sort of infected with groupthink and, and all that. And the stats... The numbers, the data, uh, show that to be laughably, emphatically untrue. I mean, on the last day of our term, we decided you know, a dozen cases, and I think five of them were 5-4. Uh, my first five years on the court, um, I did a, a study and a presentation with, a, with an appellate lawyer looking at every single case we decided over that initial half decade I was on the court. And of the ones that weren't unanimous, the most common vote split was 5-4. There were more 5-4 than 6-3, more 5-4 than 7-2, more than 8-1. Around the conference table, things get spirited. Things get feisty. Never in a personal way, never in a pejorative way, but we're not remotely bashful about expressing disagreement and often sharp, um, sometimes even serrated disagreement. And the opinions sort of bear that out. And you asked about big business cases. We don't think of them as big business cases. We think of the legal issues that are coming, that are coming to us. Big business, uh, a case that involves uh, big business issues is going to catch more of the public's attention uh, because there's more money at stake or, there, or, it's, or it's a bigger story. But, but we're, looking for, we're looking for issues that the, uh, the trial courts and the appellate courts around the state are having trouble dealing with, and they need the Supreme Court to resolve that, that issue. In connection with an LLM in judicial studies that I obtained at Duke University, I conducted a survey of all of the um, high Supreme Courts um, in, in all 50 states, and I specifically asked about the subject of dissent. And one of the, the questions that I posed to the justices on, on all of the high courts, and I got responses from about more than half of, of the justices from, from every state except one, um, and I, you know, I said, what factors influence your decision to dissent? And uniformly, the, the, the answers were somewhat consistent. And that was a, a desire to, to um, bring the issue before the public, to provide some clarity to, for another day, so that when the issue does come back, and it comes back in a different way, lawyers have some basis. Um, also, sometimes to engage the legislature. Sometimes a dissent is written because it's, it involves a statute, and there's a call to the legislature this is, this is how this is playing out in, in, the, uh, in the real world. And so um, another thing about dissent, while you only see the final product, when someone writes a really good dissent before it, it goes out, it makes the majority stronger. And it really makes you think about all of the weaknesses in the rule that, that, that you were writing for the court. And, and it makes 
both writings better. It makes them stronger. The spirit, as Justice Willett alluded to, is a desire to, to further the jurisprudence of the state and, and not to further any, any uh, personal agenda. And I think that one thing that a lot of people don't understand, uh, because you wouldn't, because so much of what we do is confidential, but many times opinions that come out as majority started out as dissents. And so dissents uh, not only have the effect of sharpening the majority, which they do, they also oftentimes will actually become the majority. Um, anytime uh, we, we are randomly assigned our cases, and uh, when we go into oral argument, we know which cases we are going to be uh, in charge of writing. When we get to the post-sub-memo stage, when we talk about in conference our views and, and the way we're leaning, we get an idea for the way the court's going to go. And so at that point in time, as the lead writer, uh, you, you kind of have to make some decisions. Are you going to uh, move a little bit so that you can retain the majority, which oftentimes you want to do, or are you going, there's only so far that you're going to go. And so at some point, you're going to give it up, and you're going to become the dissent. But when that happens, then, of course, the person that wrote that dissent then becomes the majority. And nobody really knows about that except for the nine of us. We, we have a case that came out this past term, and there was a majority written, excellent majority. Then there was a dissent written, excellent dissent. Uh, and from those two writings, Another writing was prepared, which was actually uh, much sharper than the, than the prior two, and that would have never happened had those separate writings not taken place. You know, and and not, we certainly don't rubber stamp each other. Uh, we don't argue for the sake of arguing, but we are all very dedicated to making sure that the rule is applied correctly and that the study is going into that needs to be uh, done in order for that to happen, and dissents contribute to that process very strongly. We take uh, two kinds of cases. We take a handful of cases where pretty much all nine of us from the very beginning think the decision below was wrong. And we think that it is so plain it can be explained in three or four pages. Uh, there's just a handful of those. And the rest of the cases we take don't have an answer. And they're good arguments on both sides. Um, they're reasonable positions. Sometimes the Court of Appeals has panel is split. Sometimes the Courts of Appeals across the state are split. This is just an issue that reasonable people can disagree about, but needs to be decided. Um, and those are hard cases. One thing that I think that we do try to do is we try not to have plurality because pluralities really don't offer much guidance to the bar. And so we work very hard to keep that from happening. Now, sometimes it happens anyway, but we really work very hard not to have pluralities. You know, some other courts you'll see, uh, there'll be, you know, six opinions or seven opinions, and you have to have a degree in math just to figure out what the law is, you know, figuring out, okay, is there five on this issue, five on this issue. And like I say, we put a lot of time into not letting that happen. But sometimes it's just unavoidable. Um, maybe people don't know um, that you do more than just decide cases. Um, maybe you'd like to talk about some of the extrajudicial efforts um, that you guys have been doing 
um, the court's um, state and federal support to access to justice, for example? Well, a lot of our work as uh, the supervisors of the uh, Texas justice system is administrative. Um, and it's all sorts of things. Um, it, we divide up those responsibilities, and each uh, member of the court is assigned uh, to be the liaison to various different groups. Uh, so, for example, Justice Johnson uh, is the liaison to the State Bar of Texas and um, meets with them, carries their concerns to the court, our concerns to the bar, uh, and uh, helps to, in that oversight process to make sure that the justice system is functioning well. Um, the uh, one thing we do, is, as you mentioned, uh, is support access to justice. Uh, and that has been this court's commitment since the 1980s. Uh, one of my predecessors, Chief Justice Pope, um, uh, made uh, IOLTA program mandatory in Texas, which um, made sure that insurance on lawyer trust accounts um, would go to support uh, basic uh, civil legal services for the poor. Uh, and that sustained those efforts uh, for many years. The last several years, the interest rates have been zero. Uh, and so that fund has fallen to a very low number from some $25 million a year uh, six or eight years ago to uh, about a million or two million now. Um, we've had to go to the legislature to ask for public support uh, for uh, access to justice, and the legislature has, has really stood to, the, um, to that challenge and has uh, supported access to justice, and uh, we're very grateful for that. Texas has about six million poor people um, and um, who qualify for legal aid. Uh, these are everybody from domestic violence cases, veterans, uh, children, the elderly, homeless, uh, all sorts of needs out there, but all of them just sort of basic civil legal needs, uh, and the, um, uh, it's our privilege to work as hard as we can to see that uh, there's support for the various groups uh, that try to meet those needs in the state. Also, the Congress um, uh, appropriates federal money uh, for legal aid in Texas and throughout the country, and we've uh, been very active there trying to uh, uh, firm up that support uh, for uh, federal funding. Uh, but that's one area. Justice Guzman's the liaison for uh, our permanent commission on children and families, and she might say a word about that. I'll just talk a little bit about our work on the Supreme Court's Children Commission. It was established initially to improve outcomes for children in foster care, and uniquely the model for the commission is a collaborative model. So we bring stakeholders from all around the state together around one conference table to discuss how to implement systemic reform. And a couple of years ago, the commission, with the court's support, established an education task force. We brought together over 100 stakeholders in education to come up with a blueprint for Texas, specifically for children in foster care. Their dropout rates are high. They often wind up in prison. They wind up homeless. They wind up victims of human trafficking. A child in foster care may be in 10 homes in a period of two years. What happens to that child in terms of their education? 
So what we've done, the, the uh, task force came up with 100 recommendations. Then we put together a task force to implement the recommendations. And yesterday at our Children's Commission meeting, uh, the report was that 84 of those recommendations have either been implemented or in the process of being implemented. For example, with the help of the Texas Education Agency, every school district in this state must now have a liaison, someone to monitor, someone to know when a foster child comes in to their school and when a foster child leaves. We're working on how to make those records electronic. What was happening is a child may move from one school to the next, and the records don't follow. So we are working with TEA to, to make those records electronic so that they follow the child. And so that someone at that school knows, today we had, we had a foster ch child register. Uh, the other thing we, we did, and uh, one more thing, psychotrophic medications. Children in foster care were being over-medicated. You name the drug, it was being prescribed to them. The judges, if they moved schools, if they moved homes, they might move courts. One judge didn't exactly have a file that outlined how many medications that child was on. One doctor didn't know what the other doctor did, so we set up a, a committee to study the, the, the medications. We brought together, again, stakeholders from every system that touches these children. We got legislation passed. And the reforms have just been tremendous. We're starting to see the changes. And so those are some of the things that, it's not just myself as the liaison, but the entire court. Yesterday, Justice Brown came to the meeting and, and shared with us some of his own experiences with, with this issue. And it is the court leading, but we couldn't do it without collaborating widely and partnering deeply. And see, these are all, these don't have anything to do with cases, but uh, it has to do with the operation of the court system and the justice system. So um, it uh, takes a lot of time. Justice Boyd's been working on uh, electronic filing, and uh, really, uh, I just oh, made three or four new enemies in the room. <laughs> this is really, this is really a sea change, in, uh, and all for the good. Uh, but you might uh, say a word about that. Well, we, you know, times are changing, and, and the court has adopted a, a lot of uh, counties around the state have had electronic filing where instead of mailing or walking your petition or other document down, uh, there's a system where you can do it all electronically. And uh, just last year, we started a process of mandating electric, electronic filing throughout the state, all 254 counties, starting with the 10 most populous counties. And that went live for the first 10 and, on January 1st. And so... As you can imagine, I just, uh, I finally got rid of my iPhone 4 this week and got an iPhone 5, so now I'm like only 10 years behind the times. <laughs> but you know the process of switching from a 4 to a 5, um, or a 5 to a 6. Um, imagine switching all of your entire system in El Paso County from paper to electronic. And so there is a great committee that, that's uh, overseeing that, and I'm the court's liaison to that, and I, last week I was meeting with the El Paso people and the Midland people in the clerk's office, just really trying to make sure the system is, and we're all aware of the, the glitches that are occurring and uh, making that work uh, smoothly. So it's a, it's a great, it's going to be a lot of savings of time and money and resources uh, when it's all implemented, but there's always difficulty in the transition. 
And the amount of time that goes into working on the uh, Texas Rules of Civil Procedure, for example, or the Rules of Evidence. I mean, you know, you just cannot imagine how much time, and Chief Justice Heck has put <laughs> more time into that than anybody would ever know. Uh, and it's such important work. Uh, and we all have those kinds of things. I'm the liaison for the Board of Disciplinary Appeals, you know, and we have a very, very good system of regulating our own profession. It takes a lot of time. Uh, we have volunteer attorneys who are very dedicated to that process. So there's just so many things like that that go on that are really, uh, you know, unknown, I think, to the public. Uh, even though you can see on our website what our liaison appointments are, uh, there's very uh, little knowledge, I think, about exactly what's involved in that. And let's shift back to cases. Um, an issue that seems to drive so many of the high court's decision, especially in multi-million dollar business disputes, is the simple reading of a contract. Does the contract mean what it says, or does the state, or the state law alter the enforcement of the contract? I'd love to ask each of you, do you think a contract should be enforced as written, or is there always something outside the contract that can alter that? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it has often been said, and if you read our cases on these, you'll see it, uh, the best way to determine the, the intent of the, of the parties is to read the writing, the, the text that they used in the document, whether it be in legislation or in a contract or insurance policy or something like that. So that's where we always start. Sometimes, unfortunately, that it doesn't end there because uh, the, the, uh, the reading of the text can be ambiguous. It can lead to absurd results. Uh, but but you, you read the language in the context of the document and the, and the paragraph in which the, the text is located as well uh, in order to, to, to try to arrive at what the, what the parties intended by it. Uh, we don't always agree on, on this, and as uh, I think that maybe the moderator alluded to the fact that sometimes we divide up pretty strongly on some of these questions, uh, but uh, it's, it's not easy to do. Justice yeah. Brown? Well, when there's, uh, well, Justice Green, of course, is right. We start with the, with the language of the, the language and try to stick as close to that language, uh, the language that the parties who form the contract uh, chose as we can, just like we do when we interpret uh, constitutional provisions or statutes. Uh, sticking close to the text is always going to be the best way to make sure that the, uh, the folks who wrote that contract or the folks who wrote that law, that their intent is being implemented. Uh, the, uh, but, there, but ambiguities can arise sometimes, and that's when judges have to be judges. And uh, uh, industry, in, in, the, in the case of contracts, uh, the customary language used in the industry can sometimes inform uh, the way the contract should be interpreted. Uh, and uh, we, we, we try to stick as close as we can to that text, but sometimes we've got we've to we've do, do our jobs and, and interpret the, the language that we, uh, is before us. And you know, it, it's so important uh, that we do exactly that. Um, I and Justice Willett are both working on our LLN through Duke. And when we were there uh, this past summer, we had someone there from the IMF that were talking to us about uh, how do you improve e economies throughout the world that are suffering. And the number one factor that they've determined that will improve economies is a strong judiciary. And that makes sense because 
who's going to enter into a contract if it's not going to be enforced? And so you have to have a strong judiciary. But as my colleagues have said, of course, our, our goal is to get to the intent of the parties. But just determining whether or not that's clear is something that is, we don't agree on. Uh, just whether or not there is ambiguity, as I've said. So it's very difficult to do, but it's very important to do, and we all realize the importance of that. Justice Willett? Um, I think a paramount virtue of the judiciary is sort of shrinking um, the universe of uncertainty, trying to make things predictable, uniform, where people can kind of order their affairs every day with confidence and assurance that things are going to be um, governed according to discernible, predictably applied rules of the road. And whether it's deciding what our docket is going to be made of, whether it's ironing out um, differences between courts of appeals. Again, you know, Houston decides the case one way. Amarillo decides the case the other way. It falls to us to kind of shrink that universe of uncertainty. And when it comes to contracts, regulations, insurance policies, statutes, as I said before, the lion's share of modern day judging, what we spend our, our days and nights doing, is reading language on a computer screen. Um, we used to pull books off a shelf, but now we kind of pull them up on an iPad or a smartphone or something, and we read language on a screen, and we decide what it means. And my personal view is, is you know, the truest manifestation of what somebody intended, you know, the surest guide to what they intended is what they enacted, what they said, what they wrote. So I'm, I'm, my default is sort of enforcing language that parties agreed to. There are some very good lawyers in this room right now. There's one right here on the second row, Mike McKetta. He is very good. He is a sharp, able lawyer, and he's very adept at looking at contract language and saying, well, you may think it means this, but let me tell you why it means maybe something slightly different. Our, the bar at the court, I've noticed this in my uh, nine-plus years on the court. In my nine-plus years, I think the bar has grown sort of increasingly kind of specialized. We have very highly skilled advocates who come before the court. And you may think a case is you know, fairly clear cut when it arrives on your doorstep. Then the briefing comes in, and that clarity begins to maybe not vanish, but things get a little more foggy, a little more fuzzy. We have very able advocates at the podium, and, uh, which is why a lot of our cases are, are thorny and nettlesome and difficult. And, um, and again, things get a little feisty around our conference table. We have a lot of affection for each other, a lot of genuine camaraderie. Justice Green and I may be bosom buddies on this case right now, and then two minutes later, we're going to go to the next one, and we may be at loggerheads. And, um, but nothing's ever personal. We kind of move past it and, and carry on. Justice Boyd. Well, I don't know how to add to all that. Uh, <laughs> the, yeah, I mean, the hardest part... It, it, I'm a firm believer that when you agree to something, we just enforce what you agreed to. But the hardest part is figuring out what that means sometimes. But, but even when it's clear what it means, even then sometimes the law says we can't enforce it. 
and sometimes there are statutes that say certain contracts cannot say this or cannot say that. Um, and, and then even as a matter of common law, sometimes the courts, we have precedent that says that certain kinds of contractual agreements are not enforceable. Um, and so we have to respect that, the law, whether it's statute or our precedent that says that. Uh, upgrading to my phone, I had to hit the accept button for all the terms and conditions from which, so I just signed a contract yesterday. I have no clue what it says. <laughs> so the, the reality is, you know, many, many years ago, decades ago, two farmers would shake hands, and that was the contract. And then it got to where, well, let's write this out, and it'd be a pretty simple writing, and that's the contract. Now, I think our judicial system, our legal system, will be challenged in the future more and more by some of the ways that contracts occur, particularly through the technology that we're seeing. And I don't know where we'll go with that, or where the legislature will go with that, but that's part of the issue we'll be facing with contracts. Well, and, and I won't add much to that. I, during my time on the Court of Appeals and on the Supreme Court, of course, I've had the opportunity to review dozens and dozens of cases where, where lawyers come in and invoke the court's interpretation, and they often offer two uh, very different interpretations for the very same language. They both argue that it is the plain reading of the contract. It can't possibly mean anything else. Courts have a number of tools at, at their disposal when they review contracts, and, and there are a number of rules, rules of contract construction, and lawyers argue those in their briefs, and judges have differing views on on which rules they should resort to. And, and But, you know, for example, you have to read all of the provisions in the contract together. The interpretation must not render any one provision meaningless. And those are the sorts of things that lawyers hang their hat on to advance their interpretation of, of the contract. But, but I think the judge's role is, is really to look at that language to try to discern exactly what it means by being faithful to the language of the contract itself, and of course not ignoring the rules. And I think that, that our own jurisprudence reflects at least a, a genuine and sincere desire to, to advance that uh, jurisprudential goal. It, it just often ends up that what has been written down uh, ends up in a context where <clears throat> you're unsure how it should be applied there. So people make an agreement thinking one thing and then something else happens, and now how does what they were thinking before and they wrote down, how does that apply in this new situation? Um, most of the time, if they'd thought about it ahead of time, they would have written down specifically, well, if this ever happens, then this. Mm -hmm. uh, but many times they don't, and so the, the question is, do you just kind of do what you think is fair under the circumstances or what you think most people would think is fair? Do you stick with the language that they wrote down? However uh, foolish in hindsight it may look, uh, exactly how do you resolve the dispute given that they wrote down this is the way it should be resolved? And with statutes, statutes are often the product of compromise, um, and which is a, different, a very different process in the legislative uh, <coughs> branch. Uh, so uh, people get together, and uh, they don't look to um, get 
100% of what they want in any particular situation. They know that they're probably going to have to trade, uh, give up some things that they want for other things that they'd like to have as well. Uh, and that's part of the legislative process. When we talked about here today, uh, about our process, it's very different. Um, we, we don't trade votes. So if somebody is, um, I, I can't go to one of the judges and say, look, if you'll vote for me in this case, I'll vote for you in the next case. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's, it, it is, no. it's very hard. It's very hard when you're sitting there in the conference room and somebody is just taking a position that is completely idiotic. Uh, and, and you, ca you can't even believe it's coming from the person. Uh, and then in the very next case, uh, they're like Oliver Wendell Holmes. And, uh, and, but that, that's just the nature of our process is that uh, every case um, stands on its own. So when we come to statutes and interpreting them, we're trying to understand, even though this was a, um, a process that's very different from ours, what did the legislature mean by the words that they wrote? Uh, which is one reason why we're very suspicious of legislative history, because um, it is someone at the time or later trying to put their own views in some written form so that maybe after, after a while, when a dispute arises, people will look back at that and say, well, that's what so-and-so thought, that's what Senator X thought, that's what Chairman Y thought, maybe that's what the whole body thought. Uh, and that can be manipulated, so we're very suspect of that. But then trying to decide exactly what the language means is, is just hard. I know, I'm a commissioner on the Uniform Law Commission, and um, we draft uniform laws, such as the Uniform Commercial Code, uh, for states to use uh, to develop their own laws. And um, we are in the process of really revamping some of our stylistic issues uh, because of these exact problems that the Chief just now uh, raised. Um, the, of course, we always want to try to figure out what the words mean uh, because that's the best sign of what the legislature intended. But it is so common that it is very, very difficult to determine exactly what those words mean. Uh, and, and frequently, even the nine of us cannot agree on whether or not that language is ambig ambiguous or not. Or some one of us will set, think, well, it's clearly not am ambiguous, it means A. And the other says, well, no, it's clearly not ambiguous. It means D. Uh, and so, uh, and I certainly know that legislative council works through that in the drafting process. Uh, but on the national level, level, in fact, we actually are contracting with some folks who specialize in this to help us figure out, as, as a commission, how to better draft legislation that will be used by the states uh, to, for them to enact their own laws to enable the legislature to avoid some of these problems that all of our courts are facing. So um, it is something that, that, that it's not, certainly not unique to Texas, and it's something that's being struggled with on a national basis. Well, we have 15 minutes left in our session, so I want to open it up to the audience for any questions you'd like to ask the justices. Here comes guy. Mm -hmm. 
So if you bear with me for just a second. Um, Chief Justice uh, Wallace Jefferson in um, the Dallas News had an op-ed years ago. And he said, my parents gave me a good ballot name, my beautiful wife and three handsome sons adore political advertisements uh, on network television, but these things tell you nothing about the intellect, integrity, or temperament, my intellectual integrity or te temperament. My success depended primarily on a straight ticket partisan vote. When judges' victory is based on party over principle, money over merit, citizen, citizen, excuse me, cynicism over the rule of law, voters lose. So my question is, isn't there a better way than partisan election of our judges? And if so, what might that be? I think that we probably all have uh, that exact concern that you are bringing to our attention. Uh, we are very cognizant that we are to be independent decision makers. And I cannot tell you how much we emphasize that and absolutely do everything we can to make sure that that's what's happening. But certainly the perception is that that may not be what's happening. Uh, so we do a lot. We've looked at other states. Uh, I personally think that there's some real validity to merit selection of judges uh, whereby there could be a board of uh, people who understand what makes for a good judiciary. Uh, you'd have judges and law professors and members of the public who can contribute to making that decision and then perhaps give a certain number of candidates to the governor for the governor to uh, make the final choice and then uh, for that to be up to for some type of a retention election. That's been suggested as, as, as a good alternative and certainly a lot of states who have employed that seem to believe that it's successful. Uh, but I think that, that the public may not realize that we are very aware that there are a lot of problems uh, in the way that we select our judges and that certainly we do not, as we talked about earlier, none of us believe that we should uh, rule according to a party affiliation and certainly none of us do that. But the perception is, of course, that we do. And the problem also with the party issue is that very, very good judges will be defeated for no reason other than they have an R by the, their name or a D by their name. And, and clearly, that's not good for the public. I confess, I've, I haven't cracked the code on the perfect replacement. <laughs> I think all of us, to some degree, would prefer reforming the way we pick our judges in our state. We um, all want lifetime appointments. But if you were to, <laughs> you know, we, I think there's something sort of beneficial and salutary about about nudging judges like us. We inhabit this very cloistered world. We're very, it's a very contemplative, cerebral, monastic, nerdy life that we lead. Did I say nerdy? Ultra nerdy life that we lead. And there's something beneficial in my view about nudging us to sort of descend from that rarefied, almost bubble we inhabit and have a neat occasion to intersect with a fascinating cross-section of people from every corner of Texas. I love that part. I love the, pers the interpersonal um, human contact part of campaign life. 
Um, I, I strongly dislike the inelegant, unsavory, unseemly, relentless, round-the-clock fundraising required. 254 counties, a couple dozen major media markets, a week of statewide TV is about $2 million. Early voting begins two weeks before Election Day. Ideally, you want to be on a week before early voting. And um, when you're in campaign mode, you're kind of laser-locked, and you're just consumed with re-election. So I, I favor reforming the way we do it. Uh, but I've not cracked the code on the perfect way to do it. And the wheels always come off in the legislature. The people of Texas, if you were to poll them and say, are you willing to forfeit your right to pick your judges? They would say, resoundingly, absolutely not. And every two years, you know, valiant lawmakers will propose reforms in the legislature and may make it through one chamber, but then not the other. The wheels always come off. I'm always hopeful, but I'm frankly not optimistic. Uh, this is not my question, but I do want to uh, thank the court for the job you've done on the electronic filing. I, I think you've done a great job, and I appreciate the flexibility that the court and the court rules attorney that I work with fairly routinely has exhibited in that process. Uh, my question is somewhat different, but I'm, I'm sorry Justice Johnson couldn't be here with us this morning. But uh, as we all know, in 2017, the bar is going to be facing sunset. No one in this room, I think, envisions that the bar is going to be sunsetted, but no California lawyers envisioned it was going to be sunsetted either. And, and of course, it was. How does the court view its role in the inherent regulation of the practice of law will expand and change in the event sunset uh, should, in fact, occur to the state bar of Texas? Well, it's uh, a guy that's uh, pretty much unthinkable, as you said. Uh, I, it would be hard to begin to know um, what would happen. Certainly there would be, almost certainly, there would be um, some sort of public, public regulatory or legislative oversight, uh, which would be very different uh, from what we have now, and how it would affect the grievance process, the discipline process, as well as the functioning of the bar, all of the things it does, continuing education, uh, the, all of the sections, it's very difficult, uh, I think, to say. So um, I think what Justice Johnson would say if he were here uh, is that uh, because there are so many unknowns there, we just have to do everything we can uh, to try to uh, help the bar um, through the uh, sunset uh, session uh, as we have in, in the past. Um, the um, bar is in a, a very uh, privileged position in that it is self-regulatory even though the public is very concerned about the way lawyers practice law. Um, and so the result of that is that the bar needs to be mindful of its responsibility to the public and um, I'm not suggesting that it is, but uh, it, it has to be uh, largely selfless uh, in this idea of the professional obligations that it owes to the public so that it's not looking at itself just like an organization for lawyers to help each other, uh, although uh, the bar is very good about 
helping lawyers in their practices, but it needs to be mindful of its responsibility um, to, the, uh, to the public who gives them the license to practice. So um, we want to make sure that the disciplinary uh, process is functioning well, that uh, the public is satisfied with uh, their, their complaints are being responded to. Uh, we don't want it to be unfair to the lawyers. Uh, we want the uh, continuing education component to be vibrant, something that lawyers uh, benefit from. Uh, and we want the bar to be concerned about uh, access to justice, to um, uh, legal services for the poor, uh, to its um, public responsibility uh, in, in this regard. And I think the court would want to do everything it can um, to help uh, the bar make uh, what it deserves to make, uh, which is a very strong uh, appeal for uh, continued uh, operation. I was struck. My, we have a son uh, who has just started law school here at the University of Texas. And he was struck by how much attention has been given during the first several weeks of law school about those exact issues that were just brought forth by our Chief Justice. It really is being focused upon. In fact, Chief Justice Jefferson was there on the first day explaining the importance of giving back to the community, the importance of access to justice for all individuals, not just those who can afford it, and that this is not about making money. This is about serving the public because, you know, you know the old saying, you know, uh, let's kill all the lawyers, as we all know, uh, certainly didn't mean that that was going to work out well. <laughs> and that's being stressed and something that I think is really, really a, a good thing. We all know that the Supreme Court doesn't concern itself with resolving factual disputes or, or digging into the evidence and conflicts in the evidence so much. But when you have a matter of great importance, in flood the amicus briefs. And half of them may say, the world will come to an end if you affirm. And the other half will say, the world will come to an end if you reverse. And some of them will purport to rely on evidence. And they'll give you all sorts of facts that you're supposed to rely on. Some are well-written and persuasive, some less so. And the question I would have is, do you read the amicus briefs? Do you rely on it? What's it what is a good amicus brief? What is the role of the amicus brief in this process? Because a lot of viewpoints come in at that stage. You want to take that? Uh, I, think, I think they play a huge role, uh, personally. I, I think, yeah, we all read all of them. Um, and you kind of have to distinguish those... Uh, briefs that come in at the petition stage where the party's asking us to hear the case uh, versus those briefs that come in at the stage once we've already agreed to hear the case and then kind of help us understand the issues from a broader perspective. Um, there are challenges in terms of when they try to submit evidence to us through an amicus brief. Um, there are things that, there are facts that we can take judicial notice of or they might submit a law review article or some, some uh, details from a published study or something. And so we have to be careful about that. But the truth is, particularly because, as you heard, one of the major factors, if not the major factor that most of us look to in deciding whether to hear a case is, does this matter to the jurisprudence of the state? Not just these parties, but across the state. And so I, I tell people, when you file a petition for review, if, if 
it is an issue that's important to one or more industries or other kinds of groups, have them send a letter to us as an amicus letter and encourage us to take it and give us their perspective on why we ought to take the case, because I think it does make a big difference. One, one problem with our system is that we're deciding cases, the decision in the case is going to affect everybody, not just the parties to the case. So it may be that uh, for one reason or another, one party or the other is not especially strong. Uh, they may have limited resources. They may not have gotten um, put together the best arguments that are, can be marshaled uh, in favor of position. And yet, if we're construing a statute, at the end of the day, everybody's going to have to live with that decision. And so it's very helpful to us to make sure that the people who are out there that are going to be affected by the decision uh, can at least voice uh, concerns that they have uh, about going one way or the other. Now, as uh, you know, the, the, the uh, situations you posit, the end of the world brief, uh, you know, that this is going to wreck the plan of salvation, and uh, you know, it hardly ever happens, so uh, <laughs> we don't spend a lot of time studying those briefs. Uh, and the Me Too uh, brief, uh, or the lobbyist brief, which is, you know, I'm really big and I'm really important, you should listen to what I think, uh, you know, those are not especially helpful. Um, but in um, uh, particular areas of uh, the economy or elsewhere where uh, issues are diverse and people can uh, help us understand fully what's at stake, amicus briefs uh, are great. And I think one of the reasons that the U.S. Supreme Court does as thorough a job as it does in its opinions is it hardly ever decides a case that there aren't lots of amicus briefs on both sides. Sorry, uh, last question. My name is Daniel Warner. I'm a senior here at UT Austin, excuse me. Uh, we spoke a lot about the issues, what you're going to face, what you might face. Um, something on a lighter note, what's your favorite part of being a Supreme Court justice kind of day in and day out? You know, I look forward to going to work for whatever committee or liaison or just whether it's deliberating cases and having a good time doing it. Justice Brown? You know, I, I, uh, uh, I got to serve in my, in my first year out of law school as a law clerk on, on this court. Uh, and uh, a judicial clerkship is a great opportunity for a brand new lawyer to kind of transition from law school into practice. And you get to go into a court and see how, uh, uh, see how decisions are made. And uh, my clerkship year uh, on the Supreme Court was one of the best years of my career. It was a lot of fun, very, very informative, very enlightening. I got to work for two judges. Uh, Justice Jack Hightower uh, hired me, and, I, and he retired while I was clerking for him uh, and was there replaced a, with There wasn't a connection there. <laughs> no, no, I don't think there was a connection there. He, he retired while I was, and, uh, and, and Governor Bush at the time appointed Greg Abbott to replace him. And so I had five months with Hightower, seven months with Abbott, so I got even a better perspective, I think. I had an elder statesman, outgoing conservative Democrat, and an up-and-coming up young Republican district judge from, from Houston who's gone on to, to, to great things. Uh, but then getting to come back and serve as a justice on, on the court has been, uh, has been really a lot of fun for me. I think my law clerks are getting tired very quickly of hearing the back when I was a law clerk stories. <laughs> uh, but I think that's one of the most rewarding things for me is to get to, is to, get to have, 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 have come back. 
I am. I was a I was a thirty something father of one when I got to the court, and I'm now a mid to late forties father of three. One of whom is sitting right over there, and um, the photogenic little girl. And um, so I crave now being the father of three, which is a pretty high volume operation at home. Uh, I crave what Justice Holmes called the secret joy of isolated thought. <laughs> and our jobs are very kind of quasi-scholarly, just re researching and, and writing. And I love that. You know, the law is a majestic, a majestic thing. And, um, and judging is a really noble enterprise. And when the people of our state confer that title, justice, on somebody, they really place, um, they really place in human hands that profound majesty and it really impacts the life of every single Texan. And it's really a magic combination uh, to love what you do and believe that it matters, that it counts. People ask us that a lot. And, and, and one thing I, I typically uh, explain is that I think all of us, we love to read, write, and study or we wouldn't be here. And, and it's a kind of a position that if you do love to do this, it's heavenly. If you don't love to do that, it's not. Uh, and so, so we all enjoy that very, very much. I know that one thing for me is the ability to work with such brilliant people. And it's not just the, my A colleagues, but it's also our staff. Our staff, we have the privilege of working with some of the brightest minds in the country. And the ability to, uh, to interchange ideas and to exchange thought uh, in a deliberative manner is just a truly um, a joyful experience. Um, and the work ethic. I mean, the work ethic of the people on this court is amazing. Right now, we're down to only four pending cases. There's actually six, but three of those have to do with the same-sex marriage issues. So those have been consolidated into one. So we only have four cases that are pending on the docket. Like I said, we only had, we had four, I think four years ago, uh, then we went up to seven, then 11, and now we're back down to four. And so to work with people who not only are extremely brilliant, who put everything that they have into it and come up with a result uh, that, that, that means that we're down to that low number of cases is something that's brings me a great deal of pride and, and I think reflects uh, the work ethic of, of my colleagues. And we all enjoy reading The Texas Lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> and we read it all the time. <laughs> That's a perfect ending to uh, our panel. Well, thank you all for joining us and thank you very much to all the justices who participated. <laughs>